copy of scripture with you this morning. You can find the 10th chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 10, as we continue in our series, More Like Jesus. And today we're talking about generosity. And I know what some of you are thinking. This can be a sermon on money. Ugh. I remember the first church I pastored back in the late 80s. I was within the first year, a little old widow came to the church, and she had come a couple of weeks. She went through the line. We were doing our howdies. She walked up to me, and she goes, I love your preaching. And then she took her finger and stuck it right in my chest. She goes, but you talk about money, and I'm out of here. I did about a year later. She left. You can relax. I'm not preaching on money. Or am I? We're talking about generosity, and we're talking about the generosity of grace. I remember hearing or reading somewhere years ago that Christians are forgiven, they're forgiving, and they're forgiving. So there. It's cute, but it's probably not as true as you think. Generosity is more than a core value of our church. For a true Christ follower, it should be a way of life. And why is that? Because a Christ follower should be filled with the gratitude and with gratitude for the overwhelming generosity of the grace he or she has received. And the Bible affirms this, by the way. I mean, when you think about it, why do some people run through walls? Why are some willing to give everything away, leave good jobs, family, and friends, and comfy living conditions, and go to foreign lands, learn foreign languages, live on lesser conditions and lesser means? The simple answer is because of the generosity of God's grace shown to them has compelled them to that end. And that's exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians when he said, the love of Christ constrains me. Have you ever read that? The Greek word means presses me on. For I've determined that one died for all. And so if one died for all, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose for them. We like to say around here, God owns everything. So I will invest for eternity what he has given me temporarily. So, that begs the question, are you a generous person? Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, is he talking? Now he's back to that whole money thing again, isn't he? Maybe. Some of you are probably thinking, well, you know, it depends on what you mean by generosity, because there's lots of ways we can be generous. Okay, that's true. We talk about the three T's. We should give generously of our time, of our talents, and of our treasures, right? We should give of our time because the scripture tells us to do so. Ephesians chapter 5, 16 says, redeem the time for the days are evil. So purchase, snatch up the opportunity. Make use of your time. Be a good steward and a generous giver of your time. Then there are our talents. We should, what, talents are the giftedness. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.10 that here's what we're supposed to do with our gifts. Use them. In other words, give. Be generous. 
by the grace of God with the talents that he has given to you. Use them. And then treasure. Time, our time, our talents, and our treasures should be given to God. And because when we do, when we express, when we give to God our treasures, when we give, as Paul says, hilariously, willingly, cheerfully, we are openly demonstrating where our real trust lies. It's not in ourselves, but in the living God who provides. Amen? In fact, when the Apostle Paul finished up his first pastoral epistle to Timothy, really the, the, the epistle that bases the way church life is supposed to go, when he finishes it, he says this to those with lots of wealth. So listen up. Here's what he says. As for the rich in this present age, how many here would admit that you're rich? Raise your hand. Look at that. I've got a lot of evangelizing here. Not, not very many Christians here today? Did you know, by the way, the United States is in the top 1% of wealth across the world? In everyone else's eyes, we are filthy rich. The poorest person in this building is wealthy in most places in the world. Let's go back to the text. No sense in having a guilt trip here, okay? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be, there's our word, and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation of the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the same Paul who says in another place, Take hold of eternal life. What does that mean? He says it twice. Grab hold or take hold of eternal life. He's saying get a grasp on things that last is what he's saying. Write that down somewhere because that was not in my notes. I like that. Get a grasp on these. All right, Luke, Luke chapter 10. So we are looking at what is called a parable, but I actually wonder if it actually happened because it's not called a parable. And to those of you that are visiting with us uh, you're not a church goer. This is like new to you. I got good news. You know this story. Everybody knows this story. It's the most popular parable in, and the most popular story in all the New Testament. It really is. But we're going to expand it to the context, which is always kind of a good idea, right? Agreed? Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer. That would be a man who's an expert in Old Testament law. Brilliant. Stood up, that's what you did in a dialogue. When somebody was talking, Jesus was talking, you'd stand up. It wasn't disrespectful. It was a way of saying, I'd like to have a conversation in the midst of this. Don't try that here, okay? But that's what they did back then. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And with all your mind, which, by the way, isn't in the Old Testament, the mind part, but he was a lawyer. Everything was about his mind, so he throws it in there. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, good answer. Do this, and you'll live. But now he sees that his words have backfired. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, uh, um, well, like, who's my neighbor? 
And Jesus replied, and this is the, the parable that almost all of us know. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and de departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, I love this. Jesus uses this word. Only time it's ever used in the New Testament, by the way, this particular word. I'll come back to it. A priest was going down that road, and he saw him, and he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, half-Jew, despised by Jews, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? That means to yearn from the gut. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. That's a denarii, a denarii was a day's, full day's wage. So two full day's wages. And gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now Jesus looked back up to the expert in the law, and he says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? Like the biggest duh ever asked in the Bible, right? And he said, notice he couldn't even use the word Samaritan. Uh, the one who showed him mercy, I guess. And Jesus says, you go, do the same. Do this and live. The lawyer gave a good answer, but he had a bad life. His question has backfired, and it's left him scrambling. In fact, if you notice uh, earlier on in verse 29, after G he's, he, he's, it's like Jesus says, now do this. He, he, what's, what's the right answer for eternal life? Hey, loving God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, that's the right answer. Jesus said, okay, do that and you'll live. Anybody here in this room ever loved God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind? Just go like this. Because it's not possible. And yet it's the command. He gave the right answer, but he didn't have a life to back it up. So now, what do you do then? What do you do when you're confronted? Yeah, I'll tell you what you do. You do what most, a lot of you do when you're confronted with something you don't know how to answer. You try to justify yourself. Desiring to justify himself. That's what we do. I had a friend who did this all the time. Constantly would pivot with questions like this when he felt like he was in a trap. You'd say, well, you'd say, well you know, you ought to serve the Lord. Well, describe service. What in the world? That's what he did. That's what, but that's what some of you do. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know exactly what it means. Justify himself. It's what you do when your life isn't backed up by your words. And some of you here and watching online, you need a justification not within yourself, but from outside of yourself. Therefore, being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? We were in a membership class just the other day, 
and we got into the subject of giving. We talked about giving, talked about tithing. That's giving of 10%. That should be a base point when you give. If you're going to be a member of this church, we take membership really seriously. That's why everybody, not everybody that comes to this church joins this church. I get it. Glad to have you. But if you're a member, we expect you to be a generous giver. And we talk about that. We talk about giving. We talk about the tithe and all that, giving 10%. And then you got people who say, well, you're tithing on the gross or on the net. What the, why are you asking those kind of questions? Somebody in the class the other day said, well, you know, some would say that, uh, uh, that you know, they tithe in other ways. And we have a little buzzer that went, eh. no, we didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't do that to him. Kind of. Kind of. But that's what self-justification will do. We look for ways to justify our good works. And yet you go all the way back to the words of Solomon who said in chapter 3, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruit of all of your increase. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be filled with new wine. That's what the Bible says. The problem with real generosity is not the fact that we don't know. It's that it, the problem is in our hearts. It always has been in our hearts. And this is why Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I can't see your heart, but God does. That's why the next verse, God says, I, the Lord, know the heart. I try the reins. I know what's going on inside of you. I know what motivates you. And that's why the great missionary to the orphans, Amy Carmichael, said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So back to this account, this story. There are several things that stand out to me. You notice he went down. So he's going from Jerusalem. This man is from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And you literally go down. To Jer- I mean, Jericho was 17, 18 miles away from Jerusalem, and it was downhill the whole way, 3,000 plus feet down. And there were places along the way, rocky crags, where thieves would lurk. There was even a section on the way down called the Way of Blood because of all the thievery that took place in this particular area. Would you notice in verse 30 how the, how the man is described? Is he described as a Jew? Is he described as a Gentile? Is he described as a Samaritan? No. He's just described as a guy, as a man. I love the indiscriminate element of this story. We could probably assume he's a Jew. He's coming from Jerusalem, but we don't, we're not told that for sure. And that's part of Jesus' whole shtick here and his going back and forth with this lawyer. He cares for him, even though the lawyer's question is insincere. So he's indiscriminate. And I don't know about you, but if you've been going around the greater metro, have you seen there's more beggars at the intersections than there's ever been? I'm seeing, I've, I've seen two, I've, I've seen three or four in one area, just, you know, one cutting on somebody else's place and this and that. What do you do when you see that? What do you do? Are you discriminant or indiscriminate? What do you do? I, I've heard of a guy who said he had the gift of suspicion. Some of you 
or that guy. You doubt everyone's motives. You see a scam in every need. I mean, do you not see the $15 an hour for hire over here? Get a job, you bum. Justifying our stinginess. When Jesus said, give to him who asks. Have you ever heard that? Doesn't sound very discriminate to me. So I love what Jesus says in verse 31. By chance, you got a priest and a Levite. By chance, I mean, they're very similar. Priest, you know, could be a part of the sacrificial system. The Levites were basically servants to the priest. Let's just call them pastors and deacons. It says, by chance. It's the only time this word is ever used in the New Testament. It literally means coincidentally. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Does anything happen coincidentally? Now, we say that, but do you really, do you really believe that? I remember... Um, I was dialoguing with a guy several years ago, a wealthy man in the community who told me he had property near one of our church plants and we had a conversation. I said, so are you insinuating that you'll give us some of that? Yeah, that's what I do. I give out land. Awesome. I was excited, told the prospective church planner we were just cuckoo for cocoa puffs over the whole thing. And, uh, and then the dude reneged, completely reneged. And look, to say I was disappointed would be, you know, like an understatement here, okay? So, by chance, I was leaving the parking lot of a coffee shop, and in front of me was a big SUV. All of a sudden, the SUV started backing up toward me. I slammed it into reverse when my, with my 10-year-old car. I couldn't get it into reverse quick enough. Bang! It hits me. Yeah, I mean, I was fine. I know you're all concerned about that in a moment. I got out of the car. Well, I find out that this woman backed up because she saw her husband driving in. The husband was the guy who reneged. The woman was his wife. And she cracked my bumper. I mean, it was a, I mean, the crack was like six, seven inches long, okay? So what ensues at this point? Oh, my goodness, can't believe this happened. You know, he, he pulls out a wad of money. He said, well, this dude, he gave me $100. And I said, uh, no, I don't think so. I, I, this is going to cost more. Oh, well, I got guys who will fix it. You know what? My guys will call your guys. I'll let you know about that. My heart wasn't working real well at that moment. I wasn't real happy with this dude, and his wife just cracked my bumper. So I'm thinking, I leave the scene. I'm thinking, I'm going to call a guy. I'm going to get a, this, this thing's going to cost, you know, he's got, he might as well give me a Ferrari. And uh, I mean, my heart was just not right with God, okay? Let's just put it that way. And, uh, and I, thankfully, the Lord convicted me, and so I confessed it to him, and I put the $100 into a little, you know, little envelope and brought it back to the coffee shop. He frequented it all the time. I said, just give this back to him. And I, 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 I communicated with him. I said, we're square. Don't worry about it. And because it's all by chance, right? 
Three days later, I pull in right over here. And for the first time ever, I backed in. I always, I backed in. I, I, I like to back in so I can see what I'm pulling out. At. I backed in. I can remember getting out of the car thinking, that was weird that I backed in. I literally remember thinking that. I walked into my office, and like 10, 15 minutes later, one of the office girls comes up and says, Pastor, I'm sorry about this, but the school bus just went by and hit your car <laughs> and took off your front bumper. The whole thing came off. If you look real close, you can see the crack that was made originally. And I thought, wow, what a chance. What a coincidence. Nothing, nothing ever happens by chance. And that's the whole point, and that's why Jesus used this word. While using the word, he knows the lawyer's own theology demands that he believes otherwise. That this was a purposeful event. That this man who's beaten with, he's half dead, he's laying there, he's naked, he's got nothing, is encountered by both a priest and a Levite, spiritual leaders, a pastor and a deacon. So what does he do? You know, both priests and Levites would often when they were on duty in Jerusalem, that's, that's where they were working. But they would, many of them lived in Jericho when they were off duty. And maybe that's the point. They were off, they weren't on the clock. You know, when you're on the clock, you, you know, if you're not on the clock, you don't have to serve, amen? Hmm. And you have this twice. When he saw him, he, say the word, Past. To both of these, the, to both the Levite and to the priest, this man was not their neighbor. That's Jesus' point. That's why he's telling the story. Who's my neighbor? But to them, he wasn't their neighbor. They're off the clock. Besides, you know, if the guy dies, they'd be defiled, and that wouldn't be good. They couldn't do stuff, you know. Touching a dead guy was, you know, would make you off the clock. By the way, the pastoral team knows around here, we don't punch clocks around here. We have lives, we have wives, we have kids, we got grandkids, we have a life beyond, but you are never off the clock in the Lord's ministry. But here's the point. We have to see an opportunity before we pass on it. Some of us just don't see real well. And some of us just choose not to look. God, by chance, <laughs> brings our way opportunities for us to demonstrate his generous grace in this world. Who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do it? Here's a question for you. Do I view opportunities that come my way as interruptions to my plans or invitations to demonstrate God's generous grace? It's a simple question. The Samaritan saw exactly what the priest saw, exactly what the Levite saw, and without regard for ethnicity, he had compassion, yearned from the gut, felt from the gut, was moved. I've had this sense 
many, many times and on mission fields where I see abject poverty and I've yearned with this kind of compassion. But the Samaritan doesn't just yearn. He doesn't just feel. He doesn't just think, oh man, what a bummer. Look what the next line says that stands out to me in verse 34. He went to him. See that? He went to him. The other guys went across from him. He goes to him, cleaned him up, fixed him up, and put him up. All out of his own resources, takes him to an inn, probably a bigger house. They didn't have hotels. They didn't have Marriott's. But there are no entitlement programs in those days either. No social security, no government emergency funds available. If you were out of money and you had to pay somebody, you ended up indenturing yourself. You became a slave to them until you paid it off. And that's what this guy was looking at. Except that you notice in the story, the Samaritan coughs up two denarii. Bible expositors debate on this, but everyone says that would have been at least two weeks stay in an inn. Some think up to two months. But the point is the same. The Samaritan, out of his deep generosity, not only saved the man, but made sure he had plenty of time to recover. Don't you love that? And then the story just ends. This is classic Jesus here, leaving us with a cliffhanger. I and mean, what happened? Did the guy recover? Uh, you know, did, did he stay a couple more weeks, a couple more days? Did he seek out the Samaritan to say, thank you, Mr. Samaritan, who I hate otherwise? We don't know any of that. Jesus is challenging you and me not to consider the outcome so much as the income. That is, I'm coming in indiscriminately to help because of the grace, the generous grace given to you and me. And so for the balance of our time, let's answer this question. Who do the individuals in this story represent? Because Jesus, every story he told has that kind of element to it. We are the beaten, broken, stripped man before salvation. That's you, that's me. We're that guy. We are that guy. Beaten, bloodied, half dead, except we're all dead, amen? We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. The, the man couldn't stand up, so the Samaritan put him on his donkey. We can't stand up either. We have no ability in and of ourselves apart from God. And it doesn't matter if you're here with tremendous means or no means whatsoever before God, apart from Jesus, you are wretched, you are blind, you are naked. And you need a rescuer. Amen? You need a greater Samaritan to come to you. The sin, and then the sin, sin and Satan are the thieves. The thieves in this passage, are, they represent sin and Satan who have wrecked this man's life. Remember what Jesus said in John 10? The thief, and he was referring to Satan, comes to steal, to kill, and to what? wreck, destroy. And some of you here this morning watching online, it's really evident that sin and Satan have done their dirty work in your life. They've wrecked you. There's no beauty of the generous grace of God 
Your life is wrecked with hatred and lust and greed and, and like the priest and the Levite, self-righteousness. You need a rescuer, amen? The priest and the Levite are the self-righteous among us who have never experienced the generous grace of God. The lawyer in this dialogue fits in here, and he feels it. You can be sure of that. A spoiler alert, there's no gift of suspicion. It's just not there. And who does the good Samaritan represent? I've already told you. He's Jesus, who feels your pain, who comes to your rescue, who heals your deepest wounds, who picks you up when you cannot stand, who places you on a donkey called Grace. And he walks beside you and provides all the necessary means for your recovery and fruitfulness in this life. That's the kind of rescue you have. And that's what the Bible tells us. When the Apostle Paul says, you know, and that's the question, some of you don't, but he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that while he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor. That through his poverty, we might be made rich. So Jesus is the one who comes to our rescue, taking no regard for himself, dying in the end. And by the way, there are many of you in the quest of seeking to become more like Jesus. And I... I've seen it, I've heard of it, I've, I've, I've witnessed it, who are regularly pouring oil and wine on the wounds of hurting people, supplying needs out of your own resources, and then some, and ready to do more when necessary. I love that. How much more does God? Because you're so much like him when you're giving Because as a fellow recipient of God's mercy, you've learned to be merciful with generous grace. The story of the Good Samaritan is so well known by believer and unbeliever alike that it's easy to forget the question that predicated the story. The very first question, you remember what it was? Teacher, how do I get eternal life? Now, it was insincere. That's why Jesus answered it with a question he knew the lawyer would have to answer as an Old Testament scholar. You got to love God. You got to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And he couldn't do it. None of us can. He didn't have a life to back up his answer. And neither do you or I. You need Jesus' life in your life. His righteousness as your righteousness. And if you get that, then you'll be able from the heart to extend the grace of God 
to others. No problem. Remember that stretch of the road on Jericho? That treacherous stretch called the Way of Blood. Deemed, named as such because of all the thievery and robbery and murders that took place along that area. Your rescuer has gone the way of blood. He has shed his own blood for you. You don't have to fear him. Come to him. Why wouldn't you? He came to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you and bless your name for our great Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of his generous grace, left the riches of heaven to become poor, experienced poverty in order to dispense the riches of his grace and salvation by way of the cross, by way of the blood. I pray for those who are here in this room and watching online who have never repented of their sins. Their lives are wrecked by sin and Satan. Doesn't matter what kind of profession of faith. I'm sure that this lawyer made professions of faith, Lord, just as many in this room have, but there's no evidence of eternal life upon their life. Generosity does not exude from them. If that's you, dear friend, and the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now, and you'd say, that's me, that's me. Go the way of blood. Go to the cross and believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. For the rest of us, answer that question. Am I generous? Have I experienced the overwhelming generosity of God and his grace? And from that, how am I doing that in this world with my time? with my talents, and yes, indeed, with my treasures. And Lord, to whatever degree I have come short in this area, forgive me. And let me be more like Jesus, who loved you as the greater Samaritan. He loved you with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, and with all of his mind. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.